Amen. Praise God. We thank God for tonight. And um, greetings, everyone, in the precious name of Jesus. This is Reverend Dr. Jean Archer, pastor of the Pilgrim Church of the Firstborn here in Toronto, Canada. Um, <clears throat> we had a break last week because of our convention. Um, however, we will continue our study in Colossians. We are in Colossians chapter 3, and in particular, we'll be dealing with verse 10 tonight. Verse 10 we'll be dealing with tonight. The thing about it is that um, I threw it out some weeks ago that um, if anyone has any question biblically, I will spend the first half an hour or so to answer that question or those questions. But I would prefer if I am asked the question in advance so I can prepare properly to answer it. Um, of course, the answer is always appropriate, but I would like to, um, you know, do proper justice to what I would like to share. <clears throat> now, um, having said that, I dealt with this last night in the prayer meeting, and I think I, 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 it's heavy on my heart to deal with it again tonight. I'm going to read two passages um, and explain them as I go along for the first half an hour or so of this study, and then I get into Colossians, and I'll be addressing the, um, the present state of things um, in the Middle East right now. So let us open in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity you have given unto us to study your word with freedom where we are right now. We know that we have our brothers and sisters, members of the same body of Christ, who do not have this privilege. So God, help us to be grateful for the time that we have. Oh God, you said in your word that a time is going to come where there will be a drought in the land, not a drought for food, but a drought for spiritual food. And you, you said in your word, O oh God, that your people must mature so that they'll be no longer being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. And we see, O oh God, that the average Christian is being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine because of immaturity. Lord, help us to spread your word. We have this proclivity towards error more than truth. And so, God, I pray that your spirit of truth who dwells in us as believers will give us the desire for truth because you said in your word in John 17, 17, sanctify them through thy word, through thy truth. Thy word is truth. And so we pray to this end in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I will be looking at a couple of passages. One of them, one of them is, um, as I said, what I dealt with last night. Um, Obadiah chapter 1, verse 10. 
um, we see, let me just look at that and show you something before I go any further. Obadiah chapter 1, verse 10. This is what it says. Um, because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. Um, there in that verse, we see some interesting information about Hamas. We know Hamas is an acronym, but but um, in the Hebrew, it is Hamas. In this verse, it's mentioned a couple of times. When it talks about um, violence, the Hebrew word for that violence is Hamas, right? Against your brother and so on. There we see Hamas is used in that verse right there. And also um, other related words to it are used throughout the Bible, I should say. There are also other passages which will say that. So the very etymology, although it's an acronym, they are knowing it just as old. The high priest said that concerning Jesus, um, he died for all. The one died for all. He did not know that he was actually <laughs> technically prophesying that that is what Jesus Christ was doing. Just as in the Old Testament when the, um, the high priest went in, he went in to the most holy place. As he went in, all of Israel went in in him, gathered up in his one person. Um, that was a shadow of Christ, actually, the, the high priest. Um, when, excuse me, when he prayed, all your prayers were gathered up into him and accepted. When he was accepted, all were accepted. Same thing happened with Jesus. Let us not lose sight of that in our spiritual walk. Jesus is the great high priest. He goes to the Father on our behalf, and he gathers us up in his high priesthood, in his humanity. And so we share this priestly ministry and connection with the Father. So as he is accepted by the Father, we are accepted. That's why we are accepted in the Beloved. And that's why all our prayers are acceptable through Jesus Christ. This is the biblical motif. That's a trend you see throughout Old Testament. When, of course, Jesus had no sin, but because he was the priest, he was also the lamb, the sacrifice. So in, in Jesus Christ, that is one of the definitions of Jesus being the amen. As our superintendent was ministering on the weekend, is that he is both the priest and the sacrifice. You see, the great high priest and his sacrifice. He is, um, and so it is important for us to understand that. So when the high priest was accepted, of course, Jesus is accepted in, and so we are accepted in the beloved. So we see all of these things that are true of the high priest in the Old Testament 
always limited with the high priest in the Old Testament because he confessed his sin. Jesus had no sin. Then um, he became a sin sacrifice for us that will be made a righteousness of God in him. And so he conferred his righteousness because we are gathered up. Um, he took our shame and curse and gave us his righteousness, this beautific exchange. And so when you look at the Old Testament here, we see the very etymology of the word for Hamas, although it's an acronym used in, in the Middle East there. Yet um, in the Hebrew, it means violence, hurt, pain, destruction, as it's used in different contexts. It's used in Genesis quite frequently too. Um, you know, anyway. And so therefore, that is one passage that I just wanted to get out there. Now, because of the, the condition in the Middle East, I was somewhere today and um, and a lady, a secretary where I was in an office there, she shook her head and said, oh my goodness, these, these Israelites, these Jews, they mean to be punished. In other words, the Semite, the whole world is against Israel. That's the kind of sense you you experience that the whole world is is against Israel. Now here's a problem. I had to correct her right there. I say Israel is not perfect. Israel is rebelling against God because you see even clips of um Israelis when they pass the Orthodox Christians as it were they would literally spit in your presence. Spit in your presence. Yes, brethren. Um, Google it and you'll see that. They would spit in your presence. And the spitting would, would be a sense of disrespect. And so, we, if we, when you read Rome, Romans chapters 9 and 10, you see that God has a plan for Israel. Um, the church is the center because every Jew that comes to Christ um, be become a member of the body of Christ as Paul and others. And it's important for us to understand that it's not like God had a plan B because the Jewish people failed to bring the gospel. We are told in, in um, Genesis chapter 12 verses 1 to 3, in particular verse 3, that Abraham would be a blessing to the nations. And there we find being a blessing to the nations that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through Abraham. So the Jewish people were to bring the, the plan of salvation to the rest of the world. So God, as I always say, took a remnant of semi-nomadic people, locked them in a proverbial room and throw away the key and say you're not going anywhere and so they are remnant humanity drawn from different areas that's why the proselytes came in like um Rahab um you know and and, and um Ruth and also um um Bathsheba you know and and you know they brought in into the lineage of Jesus and they were not Jews by blood. So let us keep that in mind. A true Jew according to Romans chapter 2 
and verses 28 and 29 is one not outwardly through circumcision and so on, but one inwardly through circumcision of the heart. Paul puts that there in Romans chapter 2 to um, rebuke the Jews, actually, to let them know that, no, um, you are not having a halo over your head as if you are some special to God. And you see that with um, in the Old Testament that the Jewish people were supposed to be the light that would send the gospel out or the, or, or the, or the um, Yahweh out into the rest of the world as a window, as it were, of revelation and um, the revelation of God, that is. But what they did is that they, they got so proud and they turned those windows into mirrors reflecting the glory, as it were, back on themselves. And you see that's with Jonah. As I always say, Jonah was supposed to go to Nineveh, and the Ninevites were just the opposite to the Jewish people back then. And um, and so Nineveh, um, Jonah was upset with God. He tried different ways not to go, you know, and um, went in another direction. And even when he um, hesitantly was put in a situation where he had to declare the, um, the warning to Nineveh and they repented, he was upset. He was disappointed with God's goodness towards these pagans. Of course, a hundred years after the Ninevites, um, they slipped back into apostasy and into, into a bad situation and the rest is history, terrible. Yeah, that's what history tells us. But, but, but the point I'm making is that um, the Jewish people got very proud and um, that even during the time of um, of the Maccab Maccabees and the 180 odd years or so in between Malachi and Matthew, we see the Hasmoneans and the, the Maccabees, they came in there and they had guerrilla warfare trying to protect the heritage from the, the, um, the Greeks who desecrated the temple. And so John Harkanos and um, Matathias and all of these um, Maccabees were fighting and out of that sect in trying to preserve they took all of the um the, the remnant fragments from their cultural practices that were um mixed with pagan practices and they tried to formulate a revelation that did not come from god and that is where the maccabee so-called maccabee bible came about um, the pseudepigraphic writings, you call it, um, theologically called, the, the false writings. Um, and, and so the Pharisees came out of, out of that because they tried to preserve and they, they made certain laws to protect the law of God. And in so doing, it covered the laws of God, the 613 laws of God of the Old Testament, and, and they started to obey the the traditions and the things they did to cover. So when Jesus came and started to tear away their traditions, that is where the Pharisees, they got upset. And so, you know, you know the rest. Why I go through all of that is that um, the Jewish people, um, you know, they rebelled against God. They went into exile in 70 AD um, through Titus and the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem. And so God now ushered in um, the new temple was on the scene, and the real temple, who is Jesus Christ Himself, and those who are in Christ now become the temple of God, 
and, and the, the, the new Jerusalem, as it were, the Jerusalem, the people of God, although there's a structural component to it, but at the heart of everything, um, make the people of God. We see it all throughout Scripture. You see it in Revelation chapter 21, where um, John is told in, I think, verse 10, that God tell the Spirit just tells him, come on it, I show you um, the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And when he is show him the, the city, the new Jerusalem. So that's a, what is called a, a kind of comparative parallelism. Where one thing is mentioned, but the other thing is mentioned, but it's the same thing it's referring to. So it is a settled theological fact that the people of God, they are the heart of and they make up the new Jerusalem. Right? And so I want to clear that out, out the way. Another thing I must emphasize too, as I, I like to give a lot of backdrop, uh, maybe too much, but take it in context. Forgive me if I'm speaking a little bit too quickly. Um, is that in the Old Testament, I, I say this over the years too, I've said this, um, God begins with giving the people a land. But then you see in the New Testament, the land is not mentioned. No emphasis is made about the land. It's the whole earth now. God talks about um, um, a city, Jerusalem, in the Old Testament. That is emphasized. But you see, in the New Testament, the city is not emphasized. It's Hebrews 11. A city whose builder and maker is God, different than the, the old city, Jerusalem. Because the city, the people of God, you see Hebrews chapter 12 from verse 23, going on there, 18 to 20, you see it talks about that. We have come to the city of the, we have come. That is a new Jerusalem. Okay, watch this now. Then at the center of, the, of, of that of Jerusalem in the Old Testament was a temple. Of course, we see that that temple now was destroyed in, in 70 AD and so on. So therefore the temple, God historically make, makes a statement in destroying the temple. Now you see the temple there again being a sign of things and so on. But let us not let that temple eclipse the true temple, who is Jesus Christ and, and the church, right? You see it in, in, in Acts chapter 17, Paul talks about that and all throughout scripture in, 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 in Paul's writings, you see that and others. And so at the heart of the temple was the most holy place. And the most holy place was the Shekinah glory of God. That is where God met with his people and we see um, the, the prophecy of the Old Testament coming to fruition. The ubiquitous tripartite formula. I shall be your God. This is not a I'm begging ourselves. This is a declaration. This is a promise. I shall be your God. You shall be my people. There's this mutual ownership. I shall be your God. It's not like you said that. God, you're my God. No, God is telling us that he will be our God. I shall be your God. That means God is taking it out of our hands. He's the one who is doing this stuff, driving it. We are told in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, it said, you have he quickened who are dead in trespasses and sin. That, you see, is grace expressed. You shall be my people. In other words, 
when you elect you're not, I am taking possession and ownership of you. And why are these two first points so important? Because they are leading to something. And I shall dwell among or within you. That is it. The dwelling of God is with man, future in the full tangibility of the new Jerusalem, the, the new heaven and the new earth, and, uh, and the body of Christ, and, and the, and the um, I should say, your, your resurrection body and so on. But spiritually, this is, this is real already. We are um, we're, we're told this. And so it is important for us to understand, it is important for us to understand um, that the temple or the most holy place already exists transcending that most holy place over there whatever they want to make of it. But for the Jewish people's sake and for the sure mercies of David, um, God's promise that there will be an influx of Jews who will be converted. Um, and, and God is also saving not only the Jews, but the Palestine, Palestines too. And everybody, this is a turning point in history, brethren. This is no light stuff over there. We see Israel came back as a nation in 1948. And, um, and as they came back, they, um, they, had, a, they had a six day war, which they won. Everybody thought they wouldn't win. And they're like a little dot on the map. And all the Arab nations and Muslim nations are around trying to snuff out Israel. It is not going to happen. And so I, I theologically corrected this person um this this today and had a discussion with them and i brought up this passage here and i'm just going to read it for time's sake um create a little backdrop there um concerning what i shared last night i'll just read and make a few comments zachariah 12 1 to 9 i'll just read verse 1 this is the burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Now, scholars believe that there, to some degree this happened already, but to the, the ultimate purpose of this writing, this is the kind of turning point which is happening now. It's in process. Thus declares the Lord, who stretches out the heavens and lays the foundation of the earth who forms the spirit of man within him. That's a, and there's a, a colon. Verse 2, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples. This is God's promise here now. What are the surrounding peoples? Look what, look, look what, look who surrounds Israel. That's the mission of Hamas and others, their mission is to wipe Israel from off the face of the earth. Okay. I, by the way, let me clarify. The land is Israel's. Why do I say the land is the Palestinians? Is because when Israel was in exile, was, was scattered throughout the nations in 70 AD and so on, other people came and occupied during that time. But if you go beyond 70 AD going all the way back, the land is Israel, right? And they gave up a lot, Gaza and, and other areas. 
and so they want the people going to get rid of them. No, it's not going to happen. Watch this. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples. This is God now. Judah will be will be will Judah will be besieged as well as Jerusalem. We, we see we see what's happening right now. Okay, on that day, which could re refer to a particular event day, but Yom is usually in these contexts can speak about a period of time too. The context can determine it. When all the nations of the earth gather against her. Now, America, USA is kind of siding with, 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 um, with Israel and others right now, but Israel is bearing the brunt of things. No, that could change. Watch this. I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. There again, as in earlier verse, a heavy stone meaning that this is some resistance that they cannot move. Israel will be immovable, no matter if the whole world comes against it. All who would heave it away will be severely injured. If you notice, when Hamas attacked Israel, right, and did all that damage and that carnage, and it's terrible what they did. No, Israel is not guilty, is not innocent too. Don't get me wrong. I'm not siding in it. Justice is justice, but I'm just making a historical point. Right now, Hamas is begging and asking for ceasefire and all kind of stuff because they realize that, you know, it, this is worse than what they thought because Israel can just decimate the whole telling people to leave. Right, watch it now. Verse 4. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic. And you see now that Hamas is in a panic mode and every rider with madness. Now, because they didn't have cars and modern weaponry, but they get it. This is military language being used. I will keep a watchful eye on the house of Judah, but I will strike with blindness all the horses of the nations. In other words, God is going to set these nations into confusion. Right? Verse 5. Then the leaders of Judah will say in their hearts, The people of Jerusalem are my strength, for the Lord of hosts is their God. Right? Follow me. On that day, note there's a repetition on that day keeps going on. So there is a, 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 an event, a, a situation where this is happening on that day. I will make the clans of Judah like a fire pot in a wood pile, like a flaming torch among the sheaves. They will consume all the peoples around them. Note the around them is continuing around them, on the right and on the left, while the people of Jerusalem remain secure there. Almost a reflection of Goshen in Egypt. Verse 7. The Lord will save the tents of Judah first. So that the glory of the house of David and the people of Jerusalem may not be greater than that of Judah. So therefore, 
God is protecting his people in every way. But you might say, Pastor, how some of them died like that? Yes, you'll find that the death part of it is not the issue. Because war and carnage, you see, even Josiah disguised himself and he went and he died. Just look at the history of Israel at war and so on. How many people died because of certain situations. We, 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 we cannot say that no Israelite should die if God, if sin, if God protecting them, none should die. We cannot say that. Okay? History, a lot of stuff we don't know. So let's, let's not go into eras and let us work with what is revealed to us. On that day, Verse 8, the Lord will defend the people of Jerusalem. There's a constant protective element here. Israel is not in their own strength. Israel is what they, is, they are not because they are just Israel and skillful. God is being faithful to them, although they don't recognize it. Right? On that day, the Lord will defend the people of Jerusalem, so that the weakest among them will be like David. And the house or household of David will be like God. No, that statement is so profound. They're not God, like God. God, you cannot put God into non-being. You cannot snuff God out. This is a strong statement. Like the angel of the Lord going before them. In the Old Testament, that was what was happening. And um, a lot of times, sometimes the angel of the Lord, Jesus Christ is not an angel, but the, the, the angel of the Lord motif, the context in the Old Testament, um, Genesis chapters 18 and 19, you see something there where the three um, angels as well went down, went to Abraham, um, and then two left and went to Lot. But the one that left, some scholars believe that that's what is called a Christophany. That's a pre-manifestation of the Son of God. And we see a lot of Christophany um, statements and situations in the Old Testament, right? And even Theophanies too, but in particular Christophany. We see another one with um, the three Ubu boys in the fire furnace. And a fourth person was there present, although Nebuchadnezzar thought it was a god, yet he did not understand much. but a fourth person. So we see that the, the pre-existence of the sun was before that. We see it in Ezekiel chapters 1 and 2 again, chapter 1, if Ezekiel, back to this now in Zechariah 12. Verse 9. So on that day, I will set out to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. So every nation that comes against Jerusalem will be destroyed. Every nation that comes against Israel, whether Israel gets help from other nations are not. If no other nation, America are in the body, um, if no other nation helps Israel, Israel will still be victorious. I mean, which nation on planet Earth was decimated as it were and almost had a, had a nationalistic resurrection in 1948, if you may? 
Only God could do that. Just like Ezekiel and the, the dry bones and so on coming back again. This is, the, this is the kind of resurrection motif that comes in different forms with God and his people. I, I saw a clip somebody sent to me um, a couple of days ago of a, 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 a Palestinian warrior being interviewed who is now a born-again Christian. And he, at the end, he really broke down. He said he had so many false passports and he was uh, one of those suicide bombers and he was against Israel, hated Israel, you, you name it, and he was a Arab in the Quran and so on. And then he had an encounter with Jesus. He saw this light like the form of a person and um and the, the, the person put his hand on his shoulder and and he he had a revelation in his spirit just like Saul said Lord what would you have me to do um he had this encounter Jesus is alive brethren and um and he and this man had nothing to do with Jesus and, and, and Christianity in fact he was hating all of that and he asked for forgiveness and this person said that I am that I am. I'm the first, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. That is what this person told um, this this Arab, this um, Muslim. And um, he asked for forgiveness. He felt guilty and everything like that. And then he asked for forgiveness and he was forgiven. And he felt the hand, the hand put on his shoulder. And he said that he, all he knew is that he had some change happen. He knew what he did. He doesn't know what happened to him, but he's changed. And in the end, he broke down. And it reminds me of similarly when I came to Christ in, in July um, 1970 at a roadside um, at somebody's gate one Friday night. Um, a couple of things he said, it hit my heart because I experienced, didn't say Jesus or anything like that, but I experienced what happened after that. He explained something similar, and I said, but wait, I, I, those two things I experienced, you're, you know, it incre it's incredible. Anyway, I mentioned that to let you know that Jesus is saving a lot of Jews, a lot of Palestinians, and all a lot of Arabs, because Jesus is reaching out to all the nations. And in the scheme of things, we do not have all the details, but one thing we know that this is so. Let me close off with, um, the, the, this just a running commentary on things here. I want to close off with this particular verse, which I did last night. And it is, It is um, Isaiah chapter 17 and verse 1. It says here, a prophecy against Damascus. See, Damascus will no longer be a city, but will become a heap of ruins. Now, you know, Damascus is the capital of Syria. A pretty big city. And um, very central in the scheme of things there. 
Here, God, Damascus historically, has not been destroyed. Still a city. Here, the word of God says Damascus will no longer be a city, but will become a heap of ruins. So when Israel said that they're going to decimate um, some of the nations around them, could it be that this is the time where Damascus is going to be destroyed? I don't know. All I'm saying is that in studying the scriptures, this, this passage jumped out at me and um, or was brought back to my memory. That, but wait, this is, this is a part of prophecy. And um, let's wait and see. But our prayer, brethren, should be, we can't stop what's happening. God predetermined that this is going to be so. But what we can do according to Revelation chapter 8 is pray through the Spirit's leading. Can't pray against the Spirit, but pray by the Spirit because the Spirit is part of, of what is happening. God's Spirit is not just working in the church. God's Spirit is working in the world too. And we need to understand that there's a doctrine, a biblical doctrine of the of how the Spirit of God works in the world. In fact, we're told in the Old Testament where it says, not by might, but by my power, but by my Spirit, said the Lord. That is, many preachers take that out of context and, 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 and talk about it's, it's the individual that's working through. The context is dealing with um, the Transjordan situation where Israel was brought back um, and Zerubbabel was a governor and they had no power or you know prowess to build anything, no resources. And God touched um the, the kings back then, the Transjordan king, um, and, and gave rights. There's where you you, you find and, and they began to get resources to build back the temple. You see, Haggai um is part of that era too. And it is in that context, all the the, the, the def def deficits and the deficiencies and the resources that Israel did not have, the Spirit of God was going to move in a unique way upon the, the Transjordan kings you're talking. Darius is one of them. Um, and, and lead them to give the resources to rebuild Jerusalem. There's a whole story I could do on that. I'm not going to do it right now, but I just want to mention that point that um, it's the Spirit of God working in the world apart from the church, but through the church too. So Satan's a prince and the power of the ear, but guess what? The Spirit of God is beyond all of that. Okay? And so therefore the Spirit of God is working. Um, even you see God again working, as I always say, in... Um, in in um, Isaiah chapter 44, the last two verses or so on, and the first eight verses or so of, of Isaiah 45, where God calls the king, um, he calls him his anointed, his shepherd, his chosen one, as it were. And in um, Isaiah 45, 15, 
Isaiah understood it when Israel was in Babylon. They thought that, oh my goodness, we're, we're finished now. You know? Um, and God himself um, used Cyrus to defeat the Babylonians and the Israelites thought that that is it, I'm finished because this is this nation greater than 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 the Babylonians. And Isaiah understood it truly, truly. Thou art a God who hides himself. God is not being hide and seek, as I always say, but God operates in the political arena, in the polit in the world system, right before us, invisible, hidden in full view, if you may. And as we mature in Christ, we, we look beyond and realize that God in his sovereignty is orchestrating. God does what he wants in heaven and on earth and with whom he wants to use. And no one can ask, why, why has he done this? You know, and, and, and so therefore we see this happening in the Middle East through the prophecies stated here. And so let us pray as the Spirit leads us that God will open the hearts and form conduits that all the fear that is gripping people of the world, especially in that area, that they will turn to Jesus Christ. Because it is, uh, many people will be saved through all of this on both sides. This is Jesus Christ died for not only the Jewish people, but also for the Muslims and all of the other, the whole nation, and God is saving people. And um, I'll just let it stay at that for now. So let us let us get let us be encouraged, brethren. Um, when we see things, and when you hear people bashing Israel, and you see have a lot of riots and people now having demonstrations and everything about the Palestinians. In fact, this lady told me this morning. That is the Israelis are wicked and this and that. I said, hold it here now. Both sides are doing terrible things. You know? And um, but but could it be World War Three could start? The Bible talks about wars and rumors of wars. Brethren, the word of God is true. We know that, but we see panning out in our space-time history, in our lifetime here. And that's why we need to redeem the times because the days are evil. We had a pandemic. We had a lot of changes happening in the world. Things are not the same. There's no such thing as, you know, the, the status quo and everything will be um, carry on as usual. What is going to happen next? What is going to happen in the next month or so? You know? I just heard some report right now that um, the, the World Economic Forum and others are reinforcing in, in the next 10 months, actually, it will be reinforced because they're going to have a vote. But nobody's talking about that. Where it will be mandatory for every medical institution globally to follow a pandemic protocol and also a vaccine protocol. This will be put in law. So all governments and all authorities will have to be compliant with this. All of this is setting up for the one world order. This is happening right now. And doctors are now crying out because the, the vaccine itself, the mRNA vaccine, what they discover is that it increases the antibodies 
but it decreases the natural killer T cells. And because of that, what it does, I don't want to get into technical here and the medical stuff, but what it does, it downregulates, it binds the mRNA um, vaccine, not the virus, the vaccine itself, binds to the P53 gene. And the P53 gene is what is called the master tumor suppressor gene. That is what every one of us have cancer in our bodies. It's the it, it's P53 gene that activates four other subgenes to suppress cancer. One of them is P21. And, and, and this itself, they discover that cancer is coming up all over the place now when people get vaccinated and, and all kind of death. Why? Because the P53 gene has been suppressed and downregulated because the mRNA vaccine binds to it. This is the follow-up we're seeing happening right now. Endometrial cancer, all forms of cancer. And by the way, I'm not making this up. I'm getting this from, from doctors who are now doing um, talks about it to other doctors and say, we are in a crisis right here. And this is just the tip of the iceberg I'm talking about. There's much more in the medical stuff. I'm trying to tie the biblical, contextual, relevant things of what is happening, what is is to come and we cannot stop it revelation chapter 16 is is coming up more and more and revelation 13 as you know revelation is not written you know chapter 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 it's written in a kind of um, um what is a cyclical but it is written in a way where something is stated and then it is restated with more details again so we, we can't read revelation um in in a, in a linear way chapter one chapter two chapter three and so on no because the chapters are not even inspired right but the, the content of the whole book is inspired it has to be read in a in a certain pattern as a text for example revelation chapter um seven talks about um the, the one hundred forty four thousand. that's an example i'm giving you now one hundred forty four thousand. okay some people think that that is Jehovah's Witness and others that this is a, a certain group of persons they take it literal in every sense but it's a, it's a symbolic number of the Old and New Testament believers how do I know that? everybody's talking about 144,000 in chapter 7 but nobody's talking about 144,000 in the first 5 verses of, of chapter 14 I think yeah chapter 14 where it, it distinctly states there that it referred to the people of God, the church <laughs> just an example of how it, things are restated in, in a certain way um, to reiterate that. For example, Revelation chapter 12, you see, it talks about the, the whole history of God's plan from the Old Testament right to um, the end of time in chapter 12 itself. Why, why is that tucked in right there? You, you see, that is why you have to read it a certain way. All the four views of Revelation, there's truth in all four views, but we have to be careful that we don't slap our dispensational system upon it and read it in that form. Anyway, and so I just want to encourage our hearts when we pray, ask God to pray us, to lead us in prayer, where we pray as led by the Spirit of God based upon the Word of God 
that we will pray for the peace of Jerusalem, shalom, pray for the, that many will come to faith in Jesus Christ, in particular the Jews and the Palestinians, um, the Israelis and the Palestinians. Um, you know, they come from the same stock, Esau and Jacob, um, as you know, in the Old Testament. And the Bible talks about why they would be in contention with each other. In fact, as I said some time ago, that um, Herod is a distant relative of, was a distant relative of Jesus, according to the flesh. Yeah, the Humeans came out of Esau, and Herod came out of that. And so uh, there's so much interconnectedness and themes that run throughout the whole Old Testament into the New Testament. And um, and we understand that um, that God makes no mistakes, and God when uh, there's an old system which talks about you have three terms. I think I shared this already, um, if not tonight, last night or some other time. There's um concerning the plan of God is what is called um supralapsianism. The Latin term supra means um. You know, like it means before the fall. Lapsus is the Latin word for fall, before the fall. So God made plans before the fall. This lamb that was slain from before the foundation of the world, and so on and so on. We're chosen from before the foundation of the world. So although superlapsianism has problems, but but yet in essence, it's an it's an effort to explain that God is well ahead of the game before things even begin to happen. And um, then you have what they call um, sublapsianism and infralapsianism, which um, are just the opposite, where God put things into plan, like a plan B. Of course, those two are definitely not similar. They're, sim they're, 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 they're not the same, but they are similar in, in different their shades of meaning, differences with them, those terms, sublapsianism and infralapsianism. But uh, those are big problems because God doesn't make any mistakes. So we just throw that out. Um, the point I'm making is that all that is happening right now, our prayers must be couched in, in the truth of God, met your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, whatever that is, not only in my life, but in the life historically of what is happening. Prophecy will be fulfilled. Nothing will stop it. Because, and, and things to show you, even the book of Revelation, I will read um, Revelation 17, 17, which um, I, I think is, caps it all concerning where God is in all of this. Some preachers talk about, oh, you know, um, God is in charge, yes, but everybody seems to be looking at the evil and all the bad. As we mature in Christ, let us see God through all of this. All right, watch this. You know this already. Revelation 17, 17. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. Now, that verse is an echo 
of a truth that runs through all of scripture and all. Now, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but yes, still fear hardened his heart. And God cannot, there's no evil or shadow of turning in him. He's pure, his eyes are gone to Habakkuk. He shall not behold evil or delight in evil. Um, so the point I'm making is that nothing happens unless God permits it. Even all the things in Revelation 13, all of these things. Oh my goodness. Revelation 17, the whole with the whole context you see there with um is with the church and the beast and and the false church and all of those things happening there. And by the way, you see the saints are there still. The saints are there still with Christ and right up to the end. Anyway. All right. I did a, I did a series on Revelation already. I'm just going to transition now, brethren, and finishing up tonight with um, Colossians chapter 3, verse 10. How then should we live and think? Now, Colossians 3, verse 10, I'll read it. This is what it says. And have put on, this is, um, we keep putting off the old self, as I always, Colossians 3, verse 9, the old anthropos, the old um not an air male but anthropos the old humanity the old self and verse 10 and we have put on like you sink into a clothing the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator now we're going to unpack that in a few minutes um Sometimes we ask the question, what is God doing in me? Why is he doing what he's doing in me? And how is he doing what he's doing in me? That's a question we pose to ourselves. And we think it's so simplistic that we start to put our twist on it. But there's a biblical format of clarity that is given to answer these questions. Um, there are different ways to answer it. That there are, in fact, a number of different but compatible images, models, and metaphors in the New Testament that account for and explain the Christian life. We're going back to basics now, but the basics are profound. I promise you. Watch this. Um, the Christian life. Now, the Christian life has multifaceted areas and aspects. It's a war. It's a war outside. It's a war inside. Wrestling and all that stuff. It's a walk. Yes, walk as children of light and so on, a lifestyle, peripateo, Greek word used here for walk, you know. It's a washing. Sanctify, purify, he purifies himself and so on. Spiritually, that is, not just physical. It's a relationship. Like a romance mm -hmm. with, with God and with each other. It's a race. Run this race with endurance and patience. It's a renewal. 
renewing of the spirit of your mind, and so on. And we are exhorted to fight against sin and be filled or controlled with the Holy Spirit. And we are told to submit to leaders as they follow Christ and serve our Lord. And, you know, the list could go on. All these things make up what it means to be a Christian. But there are certain common elements and themes that hold all of this together. They can't be done in isolation. That makes sense. And that's one word, and that word is sanctification. Now, that word sanctification, we have we throw that around a lot. Are you sanctified? Uh, yeah. But there's what is called positional sanctification. This is basic theology now, Bible. Positional sanctification that we are sanctified, set apart for Christ and for God to be and then to behave as God designed. Sanctify them through thy truth. John 17, 70. Thy word is truth. Okay. Um, sanctification. And this word sanctification is laid out in verse 10 of Colossians chapter 3. And so we have to give some serious attention to it in a few minutes I have left. Okay? And this is three Ps for alliteration and seek. That comes naturally from the text. We're going to look at the process of sanctification, the purpose of sanctification, and the pattern of sanctification. The process, the purpose, and the pattern. This new self, according to English stand, Standard Version, that we put on. By the way, I don't want to go off on something else here now. But we demonize the self. We think, let nothing of self. Here, some people get upon it. And I know what they mean, you know, nothing bad about this part of me. Um, it's all about Jesus. Yes, it's all about Jesus. In, in its proper order. But 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 in another sense, we are the purpose that Jesus exists. Because the Son became this Savior who is anointed, this person we call Jesus Christ. And so, um, let us not let us put ourselves in a proper context. Let us not think higher than we ought to, but think according to the measure of Scripture reveals who we are. And so this new self, by the way, we are told, Jesus said, love the Lord thy God with all your heart, soul, mind, and so on, and love thy neighbor as you love yourself. So self-love, in a biblical sense, not in a narcissistic sense, self-love is biblical. If you, you, the problem we have in loving others is because we, have, we don't have a right relationship with ourselves. And that right relationship with ourselves is informed by our right relationship with God. Because when you start to love yourself as oh God loves you, then you start to love others with that kind of love. 
And so this new self that we put on when we come to believe in Jesus Christ as Savior, we're identified with him in water baptism, which is a symbol, as I explain over and over, is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. All three elements are found in this passage. Process, purpose, and pattern. First of all, the process. It's a process, not a singular momentary event. When we speak of progressive sanctification, that is what we mean. Becoming what God desires of us. This is an incremental, not an instantaneous thing. It we're 100% saved. Let me qualify that. But this is um, not instantaneous. We wish if it could be instantaneous, then we wouldn't have to do anything else. But God knows better than we know, of course. Divine wisdom dictates that we grow by this process. This is progressive sanctification is spiritual maturation. So when we talk about spiritual maturation theme, it's, it's replete in scriptures, all through scripture. Okay, and so these three steps means that um that number one, these three areas mean that number one. Sometimes we take three steps forward and two backward. And um, no one is exempt from this. Paul is using a particular tense here. He's using a present passive tense. Now, which is being renewed. Being renewed is in the Greek a present passive tense. The only other place where Paul uses this verb in the present passive is in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 16, where he says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, the inner self is being renewed day by day. Being renewed day by day is a present passive tense. It is happening right now, present is passive meaning that is something that is being done to us. God is doing it to us. We are not doing it to ourselves. So although we certainly have the responsibility to avail ourselves um, because of the grace given unto us by God, God is always behind it. God is always antecedent. We are not... We, we need to understand... That is he who first began this good work, right? And he's keeping it going until the day of, of Jesus' return. And there'll be no work by us at all. We're told in Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, um, we're talking about we must work out our salvation with fear and trend because it is God who is at work in us to will and to do what pleases him. My goodness, my goodness, that's powerful. So this renewal is ultimately his doing. Hence, Paul uses 
the passive voice, the passive here. He is the ultimate and efficient cause of all the changes that come upon the self, from selfish to selfless, from rebelliousness in us to repentance, transformation and confirmation to him, from bondage to our fleshly, sinful nature, impulses, to the freedom of being like Jesus. I'll quote a couple commentators. One is Garland. He points out that Paul does not urge the Colossians to amend their lives for the better. He doesn't tell them to reform their ways or to make minor modifications in the direction of their lives. But rather, it is a matter of a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17. Not just giving up few vices and accepting a few virtues. One's whole nature must be exchanged, not just revamped. Page 206 of his commentary. Paradoxically, this experience, says Professor Mole, another commentator, um, requires a continual mortification of what is in fact already dead. No, notice that here. This sounds paradoxical. Is a continual modification of what is actually already dead. It's reckoned as dead already, but the proof that it is dead is because we are now um, acting as it's dead in a, in a daily basis. A continual and an, a continual actualization of an already existing new creation. So although already we have a new creation, we are actually continually actualizing it because it exists. That is some serious paradoxical truth. It sounds paradoxical, but that is the reality. So therefore, that is the, um, the process. It's a present continuous process. Then the purpose of it or the goal of this process of renewal is knowledge. Knowledge. Or perhaps ever-increasing knowledge, I dare say, would be more accurate. But knowledge of what? Of whom? Most likely, it is either of God. Colossians 1 verse 10 says, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. This is experiential knowledge, to know him more. That is knowledge of God. Knowledge of his will, Colossians 1, verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Or it even in Colossians 2 verse 22, the knowledge of Christ, that in their hearts may be encouraged, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding 
and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. And I'll turn Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17, Ephesians 4, verse 13, you see that again. And this is synonymous with what Paul wrote in Romans 12, verse 2. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Christian growth is not a result of the crucifixion of the mind or the suspension of its exercise in difference to the spirit. Progressive renewal, that daily putting to death of fleshly or the sinful proclivities and behaviors only comes as the mind is renewed, not repressed, not rejected, but renewed. I heard a preacher said once that it's all of spirit. No, 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 no. Right? The mind, far from being the obstacle of Christian growth, is the object of the spirit's daily renewal, cleansing, informing, and illumining. Ignorance is the mortal enemy of sanctification. I'll repeat that. Ignorance is the mortal enemy of progressive sanctification and the Christ-like life. And that is why, brethren, I make no apologies. Years ago in Toronto here, in the early years of Pilgrim Church, um, I, I, there are certain individuals I used to use PowerPoint in the early days a lot. And I, I got criticism that I wanted, I, I'm wondering if Pastor Archer think, thinks that this is a university. No, I'm not trying to lose people in big words and Greek words and all that. That's not my intention, brethren. I try to use all the tools available through the word of God to try and impart the truth of God's word to the mind and heart of of God's people so that the Spirit of God can use that to bring transformation based upon Jesus' prayer in John 17, 17, sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. And so if I only exist as a pastor to teach the word of God truthfully, whether people tired to hear me, whether with all the mistakes I make with, with diction and grammar, and um, I'm not oleaginous and smooth speaking like some, I wish I could say it like others, but the content is most important. And I do not, whether people say, oh, that was good or not good, that it is good, when very encouraging, yes, but as long as God is pleased. When I draw my last breath, I must say that um, I did the best with the resources that I had to his honor and glory. And so, therefore, ignorance is the mortal enemy of sand, progressive sanctification and a Christ-like life. There is certainly more to the Christian life than just knowledge. I would not talk about intellectual knowledge. We're talking about knowledge that is that informs everything else. And this knowledge is, is the word of God. Not just to quote scripture, but to understand what the scriptures are teaching. And you have to have some knowledge before you can have the understanding of that knowledge. 
So if you just have understanding, what, what, what you, you know, the purpose of knowledge is for you to understand the mind of God. Okay? But there is no Christian life without knowledge. And that is why the Bible talks about the uh, may, 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 uh, Ephesians 1 verse 18 be renewed in the spirit of our minds. Um, we, we're told in other parts of the word of God, but it says there, um, I pray that your eyes of your understanding be enlightened that you may know. You see? And, uh, and so therefore there's this relationship between knowledge and understanding and so on. You don't know until you understand. And in, in the Bible, they depend on each other. You can't have one without the other. That's my point, if you get it. You know, if I say it in the wrong order, you get it. They are related. You can't have one without the other. And so therefore, but there is no Christian life without it. Knowledge may not be sufficient in itself, right? But it's also absolutely necessary and apart from which all other experience, expressions of um, alleged conformity to Christ will be hollow and just vacuous. A lot of shallowness. As I said, the late John R. W. Stott, he said once in an interview I heard, an eye for eye, some interview, Christian interview they made before he passed, he said, a modern Christianity is 100 miles wide and one inch deep. There's a shallowness. The average Christian, sad to say, you take a Christian stay for 20 years. There's no Christ, yes. I'm not judging that. But ask him, what is the doctrine of justification by faith? I have a big problem, sad to say, explaining that. Okay. And so, the third point is progressive. Yes, we know that. There's a purpose, knowledge, but there's a pattern or a standard or a measure in accordance with which this process unfolds. It is after the image of its creator. So therefore, the knowledge is there's a pattern to this knowledge after, based on the image of its creator. And so here we see that this knowledge is Christ-centered. We could as easily render this according to the image of its creator or in conformity with the image of its creator. Ephesians 4, verse 24. In the New Testament, God is usually the subject of the verb create. However, since Christ is consistently portrayed as the image of God, Colossians 1, 15, Romans 8, 29, 1 Corinthians 15, 49, and 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, Philippians 2, verse 6, Paul means that our recreation, our new creation, is after the pattern of Christ. Now, I, there's a sermon that I'm going to preach 
which is on First John, where it tells us there that um, virgin now with the children of God and it does not yet appear what we shall be. What when he when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. What a powerful set of verses. Okay. In other words, God created the new humanity, the new person, and is now renewing it after the pattern of Christ, who is God's image. This is what Murray Harris in his commentary, page 153. This ongoing process of renewal continues until a full knowledge of God is acquired and Christians finally bear the image of the heavenly man. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 49, as a result of a resurrection transformation. And so, let us not confuse this now, brethren, in closing. I do not want to grow into the fullness of who I am. I, I am a man. I am what I am, Paul says, by the grace of God. But into the fullness of who Christ is. Now that creates a little bit of um, disconnecting our thinking as, as we normally would think. I have to be me. But I have to be the Christ-informed me. The Christ created me, the new humanity me. Right? So my Christian life is to discover this new creation that Christ has made of me. All my aspirations are submissive to his in me. Let me repeat that. All my aspirations are submissive to his aspirations in me. He is, if you may, I use this term, the paradigm of life. He is the true context of living. He is the standard of my sanctification, as we see in John 17, 19, for their sake I sanctify myself that they too might be, will be sanctified. Now, I explained this already in other contexts, and for time's sake I will, um, you know, it, it, it means that our sanctification is informed by Christ. Now, Christ had committed no sin, um, but, you know, he um, fulfilled all the requirements um, that we could not fulfill humanly in becoming the authentic human and he gathers us up in himself to be and to behave as God designed. So here the creator become a part of the creation. The son became human without ceasing to be the son of God to make us be the authentic human in him. And so the image of the creator himself, who is preeminently Jesus Christ, serves as the archetype for the renewal of the believer, you and me. Christ-likeness, comprehensively conceived, 
is the goal of renewal and our progressive transformation that we call sanctification. God's aim in us, our aim through him, is to think like Jesus, to love like Jesus, to feel and act and speak like Jesus. This is the essence of the Christian life. Whatever other image or metaphor or model we use to explain what God is doing in me, why is he doing it and how at the center and core is conformity to Christ, which he has, God has predestined us to be conformed to the image of Christ according to Romans 8. And God himself will make this happen. For their sake I sanctify them, that they will be sanctified. And that prayer, it is happening. God will do this through pruning, as somebody said on the weekend convention. And as you know, pruning, one of the things I learned about pruning among many things is that because I still have a lot of roses and, you know, I was a roses expert, books on it, try to get the most exotic and unique roses on, 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 on the block, as it were. <laughs> I like those unique ones. But when it came to fall and the is blooming, I would prune them. Pruning is an ugly picture, but then it leads to beauty in the spring. Pruning, you have to have knowledge to prune. What to prune, when to prune. Pruning also strengthens the plant because if it just has everything that's growing wildly, it saps a lot of energy. Pruning makes a plant more sap potent. Pruning tells the plant, pruning is painful, but pruning cannot happen without the close attentiveness, both in person and in mind of the person who is doing the pruning. So when you are being pruned, brethren, is God. God is close. Although it seems as if he's on the other side of the universe. <laughs> he's actually close. That's one thing. Oh, my goodness. And so, um, thinking of strange concern, the fire trial has some trial, but God's glory rests on you. It is, it is at that time where you think it Oh my goodness, God is far from me. He's blessing everybody else. No, that's the opposite happening. Right? So I just want to close that in this process of progressive sanctification, pruning is part of the process where God is shaping us and making us into what and who we ought to be because he has predestined that this is going to happen. He has predestined us to be conformed to his son. Nothing can change that. Thank God that if it was left to us, this would not happen. This tells us 
This is an expression of God's grace and God's love for us. This is yet to come. God bless you, brethren. Father, we thank you for this study tonight. Thank you for what we have covered. Thank you for this beautiful text of Colossians chapter 3 and verse 10, where we are told, O oh God, that we are being um, have, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed after the knowledge of the image of its creator. Thank you, Lord, that this is a process. Thank you, Lord, that this is a purpose that in doing that to know the knowledge. And um, it's also a pattern. And the pattern is that of after the image of its creator. Thank you, Lord, that this is being done to us in the passive voice because we are the recipients of it on a day-to-day -day basis. All the situations that we are going through and we will go through, this is what is happening. Thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word. May we go forth and embrace these issues that are happening to us and understand them in the context of your word. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord bless and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you shalom in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, God bless you, brethren. Thank you for your attentiveness tonight. And um, the Lord willing, I'll see you on the weekend. Okay? God bless you too. Okay. Good night, my brethren. Good night. Good night. Amen. God bless. Thank you.